Contractors are nervous about the continuing resolution the government is operating under since Saturday. Perhaps more troubling is the expiration of the research and development tax credit of 100%. Now it's back to 20%, and that has big ramifications, according to my next guest. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and he joins me now. And David, we'll get to the CR, such that it is, but this tax credit expiring, you were surprised, you said, to find how much it really matters to services contractors. That's right, Tom, and and, uh, 100% was uh, available for about four years. It was in the Tax Reform Act passed back in the Trump administration, and it expired uh, at the end of last year, and we've been arguing that it should be renewed. But most of the focus, first of all, most of the focus has been on the broader commercial companies across America that spend research and development dollars and want to deduct those. And from a DOD point of view and a federal government point of view, the focus has largely been on the big contractors with large research and development contracts. These are typically the big weapon systems contractors uh, and other large companies. But what we have found at PSC, as we've been arguing for the uh, renewal of that 100% tax deduction, is that it also affects services contractors in ways that, uh, frankly, I was uh, I was unaware of. Because we've always known that there are real advantages to process innovations and systems innovations in bringing improvements to the government. And it turns out those are eligible for the tax deduction under what's called the Qualified Research Activity, the QRA. Um, but you know, many of those expenses are funded by operation and maintenance funds, not research and development funds or even procurement funds. And so the tax credit can be claimed uh, by, by a whole host of companies that we don't typically think of as big research and development companies. That could then back up into the types of services and innovations the government itself gets from contractors. Well, well, absolutely, because when a contractor proposes, particularly on a cost-plus or cost-plus incentive fee contract, when a contract proposes uh, innovations built into their bid, that's predicated upon their ability to, to meet cost and schedule. Part of that cost is, in fact, what they can deduct from their taxes. So if that is eliminated, it'll put contractors in a position where they have to propose less innovation and it'll lead to less competition across the federal government. That's interesting because a lot of agencies, particularly defense agencies, have been running challenge competitions en route to maybe larger contracts. And the challenge competition would basically pay people the nominal fees anyway, to develop new innovations under research and development types of activities. Right. But developing these things is, is not a, you know, a, a one month or a six month exercise. This is something that takes years of experience and investment across the board. And frankly, we haven't seen much in the way of federal agencies weighing in on the uh, extension of this R&D tax credit. Obviously, there's not much time left if it's gonna apply to this fiscal year or this calendar year for tax purposes. Uh, Congress is not gonna be in much longer. So we're encouraging the administration to uh, to weigh in on this as well as uh, renewing our, our exchanges with Congress and reinforcing the idea that it's not just the large R&D companies, but in fact, it's many of the services companies, including technology and IT companies that need to benefit. And watching what happened in Great Britain, maybe Congress doesn't dare touch the tax code in any way, shape or form anymore, at least for the current couple of years. Well, that's uh, that's a beyond the PSC's purview, but uh, it's certainly been a been a, a headline grabber. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And that CR, we now know, goes through December 16th. 
And then what? I guess that's what contractors are actually looking at. There's three big questions with a continuing resolution, Tom. One is what's the level it's at? And this year, like many years, is just at the fiscal year 22 level. So there's no increase in funding. And this is particularly troubling since we've had a lot of inflation over the past year uh, that wasn't built into that FY22 appropriation. So a lot of companies have incurred dramatically increased costs in both their workforce and in their materials and supplies and transportation, et cetera. Uh, None of that is covered under the CR. So even for ongoing work, there's not enough funding available because no funding was increased. Of course, under a CR, there's also no new starts, which means that all of the bids and proposals that we're in that haven't been awarded yet will be put on hold now uh, for at least another two and a half months. And then the third issue is, okay, what's the end game? What happens when, before we get to December 16th? This is troubling for two reasons. One, of course, we have an election and the outcome of the election may influence uh, what members of Congress uh, want to do. In fact, it may even in influence which members of Congress will still be in office after January 3rd when the 118th Congress comes in. But more importantly, we don't have agreement between the White House or between the House and Senate or between the Democrats and the Republicans over what the level of spending should be for fiscal year 23. We're already in fiscal year 23. We'll be under OCR until December 16th. But until we reach agreement on what those spending levels are, we can't finalize the appropriations bill, which will probably be a big omnibus package of all 12 appropriations bills rolled into one, we can't finalize that. So there's at least a possibility that we'll get to December 16th and we'll see yet another continuing resolution. It's happened four times in the last seven years that we've gone well into the next calendar year, sometimes March, April, May. Um, and for a one-year appropriation, that's ridiculous to only have five months left to execute it. Right. I think in the current or the most recently expired fiscal year, 2022, that didn't get resolved until about seven months of the year left. It was March 15th before the president signed it, but it was the end of April before agencies got their funding from OMB. So then they had May, June, July, August, September, five months left to, to expend those. Uh, in fact, the work is there to be done. Uh, But without the funding, you can't actually issue the contracts to get the work done. And this is important for every agency and its mission. Well, I guess maybe now agencies then are turning more and more to the Technology Modernization Fund and whatever money there might be in some of these bills that get appropriated outside of normal appropriations for whatever national emergency Congress perceives. We've been tracking a couple of sort of secondary data points here. One is the, the monthly Treasury report on outlays. Now, outlays lag obligations, right? And so they don't track the outlays back to which fiscal year the funds were appropriated in. But across the agencies, and even in the Defense Department, and this is rare and unusual, outlays are actually down a bit over the fiscal year 21, even though funding was up. And so there's a problem internally to the agencies in execution. Now, that problem is not dramatically affected by the CR, except where it's new starts. So if it's an exercise of an option uh, or a continuation of existing work, that's fine. But the prohibition on new new starts, even with the availability of funding, is a real dampening effect on, uh, on the important issues that the government needs to be tackling. And while we have you, I guess contractors are also looking at the still unresolved National Defense Authorization Act, where you're not seeing a lot of inflation compensation happening. Well, there's, there's really three issues involved in that. And you're right. The, the NDAA, of course, the House passed its version of the bill last summer. The Senate introduced and reported out of committee its version, but it hasn't yet been to the Senate floor. We have two possible paths forward. One is the Senate could consider that bill 
pass it and then go into conference with the uh, with the House. Uh, the other is more likely what we did last year, which is uh, essentially moving towards a conference based on the committee version of the bill, not based on a Senate pass version of the bill. That's the more likely outcome here. And the Senate did open up the floor last week to amendments being submitted to that Senate bill. There's a hassle of those amendments that are been submitted. We're still going through them at PSC to see which are the most important ones. But there are the three issues tied to inflation are, number one, you've got to have agreement that there's actually a problem here. Obviously, companies' costs are up, right? But not everybody agrees that they should be reimbursed for those costs. Maybe you just take it out of profit, some people are saying, uh, which might work for some companies, but certainly not going to work for the 100,000 companies that are doing business with the federal government. Then the second question is, once you agree on the problem, you have to provide the funding. Obviously, as we just discussed, the CR doesn't do that. It's capped at the FY22 level. By the way, the inflation estimate built into that appropriation was about 2%. So they're you know 7% short on a $1.5 trillion budget. That's a big number. Uh, you know, it's about $120 billion. That's right. Yeah, Treasury bonds here. are giving three and a quarter percent. <laughs> well, there is the issue here, the issue of the debt ceiling, which we'll talk about probably in a future broadcast here. And then finally, there's a question of the mechanisms. Even if you had the money, what are the mechanisms in place? And here we've seen a big disconnect because, uh, you know, the General Services Administration has really opened the aperture for more requests for equitable adjustment from companies, while the Defense Department has largely been discouraging them and saying they should only happen in rare and extraordinary circumstances. We sort of think 9% inflation is a rare and extraordinary circumstance and should be taken into account, but we're still working that with the Defense Department. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll continue these issues until they're resolved. All right, and we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really 
impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.